2: heads bow down we'll gather
3: here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way yeah. welcome to ask the lawyer with me mike connors today i'm accompanied by my wife beth
4: hello everybody
3: and by one of the attorneys in our office, Josias. Good
5: afternoon, everybody.
3: Okay, now this, for those of you who don't know this show, it's in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, nostalgia, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about history, and I guess some nostalgia there. We're going to be talking to one of our employees' mothers, Helene Baki, who was in Norway during the Second World War when the Nazi forces in- invaded Norway. And we're going to be talking to Stephen Tolti about his book about Detective Petrosino and the Black Hand in the Turn of the Century in New York City and Italy. But in the meanwhile, let's get back to uh,
5: state planning and elder law. Josez, do you have a question? Yes, Mr. Connors, we have a question from Jorge. Okay. The question is, to sell real estate in Puerto Rico on behalf of the owner, can I use a power of attorney from New York or do I need a special power of attorney? Can that property be put into a trust? Well, why don't you answer that question, Hazai? And, and tell, them, tell the audience where you went to law school and, and where you first practiced law. Sure thing. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Mr. Connors uh i'm a licensed attorney from puerto rico i'm also licensed here in new york i went to law school at the pontifical catholic university of puerto rico that is in ponce very beautiful place in puerto rico that everybody should go there and visit so therefore i'm very familiar with the laws of puerto rico so i'm gonna take this opportunity to answer this question okay so first uh the agent is gonna need a special power of attorney okay And uh, in Puerto Rico, power of attorneys are, um, let's say, control regulated by the Puerto Rico Civil Code. Uh, Specifically, the Article 10, it says that all real estate in Puerto Rico is subject to the laws of Puerto Rico. And basically, the law regarding this matter is that in order for an agent to be able to uh, sell um, real estate on behalf of the owner, he's going to need a limited special power of attorney. Okay, basically, that means that it's a very specific uh, power of attorney executed only for the agent to sell a specific piece of real estate. And the document also needs to include a description of the real estate that is going to be sold. Okay, so that um, document, that instrument can be executed either in Puerto Rico or New York. If it's in Puerto Rico, obviously by a licensed attorney in Puerto Rico it's if it's executed in new york it's okay you can still use it but just make sure that you get the apostille from the the department of state of new york okay that only costs ten dollars and also the general the regular power of attorney executed in new york the statutory short form can also be used in puerto rico as long again as it has the apostille okay uh but again In order for the agent on behalf of the owner to sell real estate, he's going to need the limited special power of attorney. Very good. Thank you. Now, Beth, you have a question from North Carolina.
4: I do. My peeps back from way back were in North Carolina. This is from Kate. Mike, I live in North Carolina, and my 85-year-old Aunt Millie lives alone in New York. I have been told that the courts may need to appoint a guardian for Aunt Millie. Can you tell me about the process? I'm thinking about moving to be closer to her. Could I be her guardian?
3: All right. One, one of the first questions I would I'd like to ask, does Aunt Millie really need a guardian? Is she mentally alert and competent enough to sign a PAV attorney, which is a lot simpler procedure. A PAV attorney, she signs in front of a witness and a notary, and, and basically she can appoint someone to help her manage her affairs or whatever. Now, if if she's not mentally competent, she doesn't know who her relatives are, she doesn't speak in sentences, she uh, she has no understanding of what her assets are, well, then, unfortunately, we may need a guardian. A guardian is somebody appointed by the court. It's a court procedure. Ordinarily, you want to avoid that if possible. If Aunt Millie has, you know, she doesn't have the capacity to make decisions, she can't speak in sentences, she doesn't know who her relatives are, she doesn't have an idea of what assets she has, well, obviously then we may need a guardian. But if she can comprehend who her relatives are and then she can speak in sentences and people can understand what she's communicating, then I would try to do a power of attorney, a durable power of attorney, where she can appoint someone, let's say you, to be her power of attorney, then we may not need the guardianship. If she's not mentally competent, she doesn't have capacity to make decisions, and we have to go to court, if the judge decides who the guardian is, you certainly could apply to be her guardian in in the court procedure, and there'd be a lot of factors involved. And of course, the further away you are, the less likely the court's going to appoint you as guardian, the closer you are, the more likely. And and most of the time, the court does like to appoint a relative first. depends what the family dynamics are. And sometimes guardianship parts are a fight between family members as to who's going to be in charge. Yes, you certainly can apply to be a guardian. A lot depends on the facts of the case, which, you know, right now we don't know that much about. But I, my first alternative is if somebody can talk to Aunt Millie and see if she has the capacity to sign documents on our own behalf. And in that case, we can sign a have attorney and then Go from there, and Aunt Millie chooses the person who's going to take care of her affairs. Of course, I hope Aunt Millie has a will and some guidance in place, but that's uh, another story. But yes, if you want to move closer, you got a better shot of being guardian. Of course, even if you're a power of attorney, the closer you are, it's somewhat easier. A lot of times people say to me, Well, I, you know, I trust my, my, niece nephew in North Carolina will say, But isn't that too far away? No, not really. Yeah, to some extent there's some advantages of being of living close in the area. It's not the nineteenth century. We're not using Pony Express. There's express mail, they're faxes, they're emails. Business can get done over distances right now. So it's not as much of a disadvantage to be in North Carolina handling things as it used to be in the old days. Yeah, if you're going to sell a house and you want an agent to sell the real estate, yeah, it's a little bit easier if you're around and you can go over to the house and Talk to the real estate broker and make your own decisions or whatever, but things can be delegated. And I can't stress this enough. A lot of times, like if you have a, a nephew and niece, a son and daughter, who you really trust and you want to put that person in charge, I wouldn't worry about geography as much as I would worry about is the person trustworthy? Can they handle things on your behalf? And if that's the case, maybe we go with a, a, a power attorney. And if you have any questions, you can always schedule an appointment or at our office at 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
6: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Monday, October 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the 311 3- West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
6: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com. That's ConnorsAndSullivan.com.
6: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com.
1: Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth.
4: Hi, everybody.
3: And Jose.
5: Good afternoon, everybody. Okay.
3: I think we cut off one of the questions there. Can that property, when we're talking about Puerto Rico, can that property be put into a trust?
5: Well, the answer to that question, Mr. Connor, is yes. In Puerto Rico, we have what is called the Trust Act. And just a curious fact, in Puerto Rico, trust is actually called fideicomiso. It's a very unique word. But uh, the Trust Act, just to simplify the, the answer to Jorge's questions, provide with the procedure and mechanism to be able to put real estate into a trust like people do here in New York. The process is very similar. You're going to have the grantor, trustees, beneficiaries. Um, also, is the trust instrument is going to be kind of a deed where all the specifications of the contract are going to be uh, specified. And basically, once the instrument is executed, it's going to be recorded at the Puerto Rico Real Estate Registry and also at the Puerto Rico Powers of, of Attorney, um, the Trust Registry. I apologize for the confusion. But yes, uh, like very similar to the process in New York, uh, in Puerto Rico, people can put real estate into the trust for the same reasons, to get protection from creditors, Medicaid, whatever is the reason. One thing is that... it it has to be irrevocable truths only. Okay, And it has a uh, limited duration. It goes from 75 years up to 90 years in cases where it involves uh, minors or disabled people. All right, very good. Glad we got that second
3: question out. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough, who has a a radio show on 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. Wednesday, he has an additional hour because he also has John Katsimatidis on during the 5 o'clock hour. And he has a show nationally, which is heard on... 570 The Mission from Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. Each week he takes one of our caller's questions and we answer it on his show. So take it away, Kevin.
2: Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that you'll get one, one question answered by Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan Law, uh, the leading law firm in the New York area when it comes to estate care and elder law. And, uh, Mike, this week's question comes from Rachel. She said, if my parents have property in several states, does it mean that I need to start probate processes in those states or can all assets be probated in one court? What do you say, Mike Connors?
7: a lot depends what the assets are but if it's real estate ordinarily real estate if you own real estate in another state you have to probate your will in that state so let's say for the sake of argument rachel's parents own a house here in new york a vacation home in the poconos and a condo in florida they pass away the deed is in their name alone when they pass away we got to probate the will here in new york probate the will in florida and probate the will in pennsylvania and you're paying for three different proceedings in three different states, and that gets expensive and time-consuming. And that doesn't even count if you have any legal problems, like somebody contesting the wills or whatever. So, you know, if it's bank accounts, you can probate in one state. That'll take care of the your state of domicile.
2: But uh, it, you've, it's best to do what as it relates to real estate?
7: You want to put those assets in a trust before you pass
2: Single away. trust, gotcha.
7: You, you put it in a trust you don't have to go through probate in any one of, in the example I just gave. Yeah, the
2: that would solve a huge amount of problems. Right. Friends, here's the thing. If you're cloudy about this at all, just call the Connors Law Office, uh, 718-238-6500. A few years ago, I had some questions about our will. Basically, it was was existent. There were some things that we needed to get straight with a special needs son that I had. And Connors and Sullivan went to work for me. And I got to tell you, I, w- I felt so cared for from the very moment that we uh, began talking about my fairly sensitive case anyway they'll do the same with you 718-238-6500 is the number 718-238-6500 send your questions to ask mike connors at gmail.com ask mike connors at gmail.com and then uh, make sure you check out his uh, radio broadcast ask the lawyer saturday mornings at 8 on am 570 the mission and sunday mornings at 11 on am 970 the answer mike connors thanks so much
3: thank you kevin thank you again kevin Mr. Cordani, how does somebody email us a question again? Because Kevin mentioned it briefly, but but how does somebody email us a question?
1: They hit the computer and uh, email us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com.
3: Again, if you want to like us on Facebook, how, how do you like us on Facebook?
1: Hit the Facebook page. That's the one that goes Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Tape that in, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. You can see Mike's smiling face and like the page. There'll be a little button that says like. Now, if it says liked on it, that means you already liked it. But if it doesn't say like, then it says like. Click on it and you'll have liked the page. All
3: right. Okay. I'm still not sure why people would like the page, but... Because it's what a do they find movie? out? What do they find out?
4: <laughs> they got to connect with us. But why? That's the way you make the connection. Why
3: do we need to, to make the, the connection?
4: You, you're a man of the people. Or you could tweet yeah. a lot. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. but I've never tweeted, so <laughs> I'm not going to start now.
4: <laughs> no, but that. But they can look and see what our old shows were, what the upcoming shows are. There's a lot of information on there.
3: Our... our Next guest is, is is an author. You know, he wrote a book about Captain Phillips, which came a movie with uh, Tom Hanks. But what came to our attention, he, he's written a book about Detective Sergeant Petrosino, who was a very famous detective of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And by the way, those of you who stopped by our, our Brooklyn office, we have a plaque dedicated to a uh, contemporary of Detective Petrosino, Sergeant of Detectives Henry Pryor Foy, and he was, uh, he he retired a captain years later. But the picture we have is when he was a sergeant on his 20th anniversary in the New York City Police Department. We have some of his materials which are pretty fascinating. And one of the things we have, he arrested a serial killer named Johann Hock in 1905. It's really fascinating because we looked at some of the newspaper articles which he had, which his wife kept as a scrapbook. And at the time, they thought Hock killed, I think, six women. Now, uh, on the internet and YouTube and things like that, what bet they're saying he may have killed about fifteen women.
4: That's what, and and it's not even when you get on YouTube. There's an it's in English, but it's also in German because he was born in Germany and he's internationally infamous. And um, our our fella, if you ever come to the office and you want to see um, Detective Sergeant Foy's photo, um, it's it. It just seems like it's an amazing bunch of people that were in the police force back then, and they were all friends of Theodore Roosevelt. In some respects, Mike, I think they handpicked he that he handpicked
8: them
3: yeah, Theodore Roosevelt was a police commissioner in the eighteen nineties around eighteen ninety five and he cleaned house on the New York City detectives and he fired most of the detectives. Sergeant Petrosino and Sergeant Foy were two of the guys that he hired to be detectives. Foy was one of the few guys that were retained, that were detectives before, and that he kept on the force after. But again, if you if you want to hear the story, you know, like about that serial m- murderer, Johan Hock, come in someday and we'll talk about it, and you can see Sergeant Foy's picture. Beth, do you have some of his scrapbooks or whatever you can show people if they're really have, interested?
4: I do. I do. If you're interested, please get in touch with the office ahead of time. Because I don't leave the scrapbook at the office all the time. Because obviously, you know, it's over 100 years old and I don't want it to get messed up. But um, um, Sergeant Foy's wife kept this magnificent scrapbook of all the times that he was in the newspaper. So that's how important he was. He and he and He guarded people. Remember, this is when you had the anarchists all over the world assassinating people. And our President McKinley was ultimately assassinated by an anarchist. And Sergeant Foy, as long as um, President McKinley was in New York City, was the one that guarded him. And it's just very sad when um, Sergeant Foy took him up to Buffalo, um, President McKinley, for his next stop. And then Sergeant Foy returned to New York City. But it was when he—it was while he was in Buffalo that, that he was shot and killed.
3: All right, and it gets a little bit of history. If you, if you ever come to our Brooklyn office, the front part of our office on Fifth Avenue there is almost like a muse- museum. We have some Civil War military miniatures. We have some paintings that have historic nature. And we have that award to Detective Sergeant Foy. So if you're in the Brooklyn area, you want to stop by, call in, in advance, as Beth said. You can take a look at the soldiers. You can ask questions about the soldiers. We have the Irish Brigade at Teetham in our in our front window. We have the 5th New York. We have the 54th Massachusetts. Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry. We have the Stonewall at Gettysburg. We have the Pickett's Charge, the Confederates climbing over the fences. and
4: And listen, everybody, believe me, my husband works very hard. Setting up the scenes, deploying his troops, as he says, um, to make it a wonderful, wonderful um, small museum.
3: Which I received numerous amounts of criticism, but.
4: <laughs>
3: so, in any event, we need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Stephen Salty about his book about Detective Petrosino. <laughs>
9: If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash f milia once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement
1: frank milia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503 Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like
3: history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Many of you know, listening to our show, that we're always interested in history. It came to my attention a book, you know, about Detective Joseph Petrosino and, and the Black Hand, and we're very fortunate to have the author of the book on, Stephen Tolty. How you doing? Welcome to Connor's Corner.
10: I'm good. Good to be here.
3: First, who was who was Detective Petrosino?
10: Joseph Petrosino was an immigrant. Um, came over when he was a teenager to America. Um, and like many Italian immigrants at the time, took a variety of jobs to sort of make it in his new homeland. Um, but eventually he became a New York City detective, and he was the first Italian American sergeant detective in the country. And um, you know, just a fearless, non-corruptible. straight shooter, uh, very intelligent. Had a Later in his career, he would have a wardrobe that was compared to the Metropolitan Opera. If he would go in disguise, he could be a, a government worker, a Hasidic Jew, a ditch digger. And he used all these disguises to basically attack what became his, his lifelong nemesis, which was kind of the mafia before the mafia, and they were called the Black Hand.
3: When I saw your book, I hadn't heard the term the Black Hand in I don't know how many years. What was the Black Hand?
10: Well, the black hand really flourished in America more than Italy, and it was. It started out as an extortion racket, where you, were, you might get a letter in the, the mail if you were an, uh, an Italian immigrant who made some money, if you were a grocer or a banker or something like that, and the letter might say something like, I'm from your hometown, congratulations on your success, I'm in need of some money, and if you refused, uh, the, the notes would keep coming and they'd get more and more threatening. We're going to blow up your tenement building, we're going to kidnap your children, we're going to cut your head off. And um, it became a conspiracy where people would um, plant bombs in your in your stairwell or they would attack your children, actually kidnap them. Some of them never came back. And so they extorted money from their fellow Italian immigrants. And that's how it started. But then it spread not only throughout the country, but non-Italians started getting these letters, started getting, um, you know, extortion demands, and it became kind of all wrapped up with this fear of the Italian immigrant. It's the fear that Italians were not sort of going to be melted in the melting pot, that they were addicted to conspiracy and to violence and to crime. So it became sort of this moral panic where Italians were, you know, a real threat to the American way. And the black hand was kind of the, the point of the sword of that.
3: Well, let me ask you something. Let's go back a little bit in history. How did Joseph Petrosino got his appointment uh, as a detective?
10: Actually, it was Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a new police commissioner, um, and he saw the changing demographics of the city. He saw a lot of Italians coming in, and he saw a rise in um, Italian crime because many of the guys on the beak were either German or Irish. The, the Irish especially dominated the, the NYPD. They couldn't speak the language, and they also had contempt for these new Italian immigrants. Um, you know, if you remember that line from The Godfather, um, they're animals, so they have no souls. That was really how New Yorkers and Americans and the Irish-American cops looked at these Italian immigrants. So the crime was growing. They had no one on the force to sort of combat it. Joseph Petrosino was not only brilliant, but he spoke all the dialects from Italy, and he became sort of Roosevelt's hand-picked guy in his department to sort of lead the charge on Italian crime.
3: How did he attack the problem? What did he do?
10: He, he attacked it in many ways. Um, he actually had many um, black-hand suspects go into their local precincts and give a sample of their handwriting in the in the way today that you might give a sample of your DNA. And if letters started coming in and they could match the handwriting to the sample they had, you'd be arrested. That was an innovation. An innovation that Petrosino thought up. He would also um, go to the the drops where people left money for these Black Hand members, pretending to be the victim, and then he'd arrest them. He did that with the famous Italian uh, opera singer Caruso, who'd been extorted several times by the the Black Hand. So finally, Petrosino, who adored Caruso, actually went to the to the drop, jumped on the two guys who had come to steal to take the money and arrested them. Um, but he also, Petroscino also, after much lobbying, formed something called the Italian Squad, which was six other guys, all speaking Italian, who would go into the neighborhoods where police were often feared and they would sort of get tips and they would talk to people who knew who the Black Hand members were. Um, and let me just give you one example of how sort of innovative the Black Hand was. They would actually get tellers at banks to inform on their customers so if you brought in you know a large sum of money to deposit in the bank um, and you told the bank the teller that you, you just received an inheritance or the money for your wedding had just come from italy that person would go to the head of the black hand the gang in that area and tell them so and so just came into some money and you get a letter you know a week later so it was really something that had infiltrated the entire italian american community and Americans, really from coast to coast, looked on it as a threat of what might become of our democracy if we didn't stop it.
3: All right. So Petrosino's in charge. Did he have cooperation from the police department? They were they were all on the same side,
10: right? You would think so, but you know, a lot of the Irish American cops resented Petrosino. Um, they felt the NYPD was theirs. They 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 often bought little police batons for their sons who were six or seven years old, saying, "You're going to be co- become a cop too." So they felt that Petrosino and the Italians were almost stealing their birthright. These jobs were going to go to the Italians. So they didn't get very much support at all. The Italian squad—they they couldn't get um, photos um, or photo lineups, things like that—and they were kind of frozen out of the power structure. So Petrosino was not only battling these Italian gangsters and these killers; he was also battling his own department for for respect and for funds to to continue his work.
3: Detective Petrosino, what happened to him?
10: Well, he really gave his life to fighting um, the Black Hand. But then uh, in 1909, um, they wanted to mount sort of a final offensive and get these uh, get these gangsters out of America. And um, they chose Petrosino to actually go back to Italy to stop the flow of, of gangsters coming over on the ocean liners. And it was a hugely dangerous mission because Petrosino was known very well in New York. His picture was all over the newspapers. Um, and now he was sort of going into the the heart of the heart of Italian crime. But he felt that it was going to be sort of the capstone to his entire career, and he had to do it. Um, you know, the black hand was kind of dirtying the name of Italians in America. So he went over there um, with a disguise, but with no backup. And he started collecting the names of these Italian um, killers and other criminals who had gone to America under false pretenses, either because they had um, fake names or they had a prison record or something. And um, so if he could track them down, get their real names, get their prison records, he could have them deported from America. But the black hand found out that he was in Italy and it was basically a a transatlantic conspiracy to kill him. And in, in Sicily, in Palermo, in the town square, um, he went to a meeting that he never came back from. He was shot, died right there in Palermo, and his body was shipped back.
3: You know, I know today there's a Detective Petrosino Association. Uh, can you tell me something about it? And, and he still has relatives alive in the, in the New York
10: City area. Yeah, he did. When when um, I started writing the book, I, I kind of looked to see if he had any descendants, and there were actually— Quite a few Petrosinos who followed in his, in his tradition he joined the NYPD. There was a, a, a retired district attorney attorney in Brooklyn. He was a, um, I believe he was a captain at the time in the, the Queens Department. So, um, not only his family had sort of taken inspiration, but a lot of Italian Americans had um, had sort of appreciated the work he did because he changed the image of the Italian-American in New York and in America. He was sort of the Jackie Robinson figure in that regard. So there is a Petrosino Association. They they meet every year. They choose a man of the year. They do a lot of good work in keeping his name alive. Um, I've gone to some of their banquets. Um, and Petrosino is still the only NYPD officer who was assassinated on foreign soil. He represents kind of, uh, you know, Going beyond the call of duty, he did this not only for the NYPD, he, he gave his life really to to improve the image of of the Italians in America and to, to show Americans that they weren't only gangsters, they weren't only criminals, they were hardworking Americans who would give their life for the country. And I think uh, that's really why he's remembered.
3: Was his life story ever turned into a film?
10: There was a, a film in the 1950s where Ernest Borgnine, if you remember him, actually portray, portrayed a version of Petrosino. It was not his real life. Um, it's called Pay or Die. And it's kind of about the Black Hand, but it's heavily fictionalized. Um, that's that's kind of my problem with that film. Um, my book has been optioned by Leonardo DiCaprio's company um, and Paramount Pictures. So we're hoping that the, the kind of the true story of who Petrosino was and what he represented can sort of finally make it to the screen, um, intact and, and, be authentic. That's what, that's what I'm hoping for.
3: Let me ask you, it wouldn't be your first book that, uh, turned into a film, would it?
10: No, I've had two others. Um, I wrote the book with Rich Phillips, um, which became Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, um, you know, about the hostage shaking and the Somali pirates and the Navy SEALs to come, who finally freed Captain Phillips. And there's another book, another memoir that I wrote, um, with one of, the, with the only survivor of the, uh, the fires that swept Arizona, um, a few years back. One of these wildfires that are increasingly common in the West. Um, and they hit a place called Granite Mountain. And that's where the guy who wrote it with, Brendan, was, um, the lookout for, for 20 firefighters. 19 of them died. Um, he was the only survivor and he dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt and that, Came a movie called Only the Brave, which came out, I think, two years ago.
3: What are you working on now?
10: I actually have a book coming out um, in April of next year. So it's um, it's about the hunt for an escaped Nazi war criminal. Um, the story takes place in, in two eras, basically during the war in Latvia, which was a country that's kind of between Germany and Russia. And... Latvian Jews were, were trapped by the Nazi, uh, occupation. And one of the sort of local uh, Latvians, actually he was a war, uh, an aviation hero. He'd actually become something called the Latvian Lindbergh. And he'd been a friend to Jews before the war, but during it, he turned on them and became known as the Butcher of Latvia and killed, helped kill about 30,000 of Latvian Jews. So in 1965, 20 years later, the German government was thinking of, of, of uh, inaugurating an amnesty for all unindicted Nazi war criminals. So if anyone who was in hiding, who had done these terrible things, um, came under this, this statute of limitations, they would be free. They could never be prosecuted. And Israel wanted to stop this, so they decided to have their spy agency, Mossad, go after this one war criminal, um, the Butcher of Latvia, get him to another country and, and assassinate him as an example of all these sort of Nazi monsters who are still out there. So that's the story of the book, how this happened, how it kind of changed history and also changed our perception of the Holocaust. Really.
3: Uh, let, let's get back to detective Petrosino. You're not Italian or are you? I'm not, I'm hundred percent Irish. Okay. So why did you decide to write a book about detective Petrosino?
10: You know, it's a good question. When I look back at my books, um, I guess the common refrain is that it's often one individual or a small group of individuals who go up against larger forces and change history. So I was reading a history of the NYPD and I just came across one or two sentences about Petrosino. And I thought there must be a couple of really good books on this guy. The story is fascinating. And there really wasn't. There was, you know, kind of these fictionalized accounts and this movie with Ernest Borgnine that was not very good. So I just decided to kind of Go into the original sources, into the archives, and find the real story. So that's really what drew me toward it: this guy that, in giving his life, um, achieved something that seemed kind of impossible at the time.
3: All right. Well, listen. Thank you very much for uh, you know keeping history alive. Look forward to the book on the the butcher of Latvia, whatever. Again, the name of the book we've been talking about today, The Black Hand, the epic war between a brilliant detective and the deadliest secret society in American history. The author, Stephen Talty. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you.
1: Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, healthcare proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors and Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30
3: years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy.
8: When a desperate parent calls YCS seeking help for their child with special needs, we are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Today while we're we're taping, it's Leif Eriksson day, so we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna talk to somebody from Norway. And I'm gonna turn the mic over to one of our employees, Arlene Rotello. Arlene, you set the, the stage for the interview. Sure. Knowing today is Leif Erickson Day.
8: Well, Leif Erickson Day um, in itself, a national holiday that uh, we, we get a proclamation from our president. President Trump issued a proclamation yesterday in celebration of... Um, the Vikings, um, I hate to say this, but we're actually beating uh, Christopher Columbus to America so we can either, uh, eager, uh, eagerly fight that uh, or even argue that back and forth and who came to America first. So we St. always Brendan. say um, Leif-, Leif landed first.
3: No, St. Brandon was St. Yeah. years before that. He followed yeah. his route. Now, your mom was in Norway during World War II. Yeah, she so was. you want to you so, set the stage?
8: So as a, as a Norwegian-American, my, my, my parents were both uh, born in Norway. And uh, I was born here in the United States. My, both my parents um, were born in 1939 and my dad in 1934. Uh, and we talked a little bit about, Mrs. Connors and I, we talked a little bit about the war and we talked a little bit about sharing some of my mom's stories from when she was a child. Uh, she was six months old when the war broke out and, and Germany took over Norway, but When she uh, the war was ended, when she was about five years old. But she has an incredible memory, a sharp memory. That uh, even even though she and she's going to hate me for this, she turned eighty on Sunday. Young mind, (laughs) young beautiful stories. And she tells stories. It's absolutely wonderful. So um, so we talked a little bit about this the other day in preparation for this interview uh, because those are stories you don't want to lose. Those are memories that you don't want to lose either. And you think about. Germany, um, occupying Norway, uh, and, and, you know, walking into Norway, invading Norway on April 9th, 1940. Uh, and then the war was over May 8th. And, uh, some of those memories from an actual person that, uh, lived through that is incredible. And, uh, so we were talking a little bit about some of the stories and things that she remembered about that. So, um, mom, Talk a little bit about what you remember when we were when, when we were talking the other day about the first thing you remember about the war. The first thing,
11: I don't know. That, that I mean, I remember many things, but I don't have any sequence to it. Yeah, it's okay. Everybody was, you know, they were more or less whispering around because they never knew. There was somebody that kept on reporting. I, for, I don't know if anybody knew what the Quisling, what that was. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, okay. But anyway there was somebody No, you there. may want,
3: we may want to tell the people who Quisling was because it's almost part of the language right now. But okay. who was Quisling?
11: There was one that kept on finding people to bring to the to the jails to to really to to put them in. They they did very much damage to the people. I remember the pastor that we had. When the war was over he came back, they had Ripped out his nails. They had cut them. It was awful what they did. They tried to find information where they got their information from.
8: I guess like the resistance type of it, the people yes. that they were trying yes. to find the resistance.
11: Uh, yeah, my father was in the resistance. I remember that. There was a group of men that used to come to our house, and we had a crawl space on top of the upstairs. In the attic? And they used to go up there, yeah. We didn't know, I didn't know what they were for. But as I found out later they were listening to radio from England Wow. about the war. And I guess uh, somebody somebody got a hold of this, and they reported them. Wow! So my father was the next, that group was next to be put into the Yale, like it was called Greeny in Oslo, and there they had them, and they tortured people. He didn't go, he was I know they said he walked all that night because they felt that was somebody had done this, but the the peace came so he he was, was spared
8: he was spared, he didn't end up going to jail, no, so he didn't have to wow,
11: but people there was a lot of people that was very scared,
8: yeah. I know you talked about um they wore lapel the paper clips on their lapels as a as a yeah. secret a secret sign to the people in Norway that that were part of the resistance that nobody knew so they all could see that on their lapels they would have the yeah, paper clips Yeah but they didn't wear that they didn't, wear they didn't
11: want the people that really they knew somebody was reporting them and okay. they did not want anybody to be able to if they didn't have to
8: Right Right. And you talked about, uh, what about the food and stuff? I know you talked about, you know, we, you had food, food issues. They came and they, they, they stole food off the farms and stuff.
11: Yeah, they just took it. They didn't steal it. They just took it. And, but they did leave some and we had a farm. We were very lucky. So, I mean, we grew potatoes and we live, we really lived in a very good organic, you could say. They hunted the birds and they fished in the lake. So, I mean, in that sense, the food was, Organic, you could right. say. Came from the ground. We picked up carrots and we hid them here or there. And you talked about and a story of how
8: yeah. you were the little one in the house, so you had a hiding space in the basement. Tell us that story. Yeah, they
11: had they had a dig the big hole down in the basement, very small one. And I was big enough, small enough, you should say, to be able to go down. And when we needed potato, I could pick up in a little basket, and they hauled it up, to, and me too.
8: They would haul you up in the, with a rope.
11: Yeah, something like that. I wow.
8: Guess. Do you know how many Germans
3: were in your town, or how often did you see a German soldier?
11: I remember only once I saw a whole caravan of them. But there was—I mean—the planes flew over because they, there was a mine not far from me where they they bombed a few times. So those planes flew over. It was very scary. Uh, at one time, I remember I. I don't know what went wrong with the plane, but they dipped down like they were going to bomb right over our lake, and they dropped something. I know I was met my father out in the wood, and he grabbed me and ran. They found out later that somebody from the town took a robot, and they rowed row out to their place. And uh, two guys, and they they lit a cigarette, and they were blown up. Wow. So, uh, Who was doing
3: that. the bombing?
11: That was the Germans.
8: But they, they were trying, trying to—they the bom- were trying to bomb the coal mill. That was probably about maybe what ten miles away from you guys, five ten miles away, Knaben.
11: Something like that. Yeah, another well, coal mine. There was a some uh, mineral they wanted. I don't know what it was. <clears throat> so those things—I don't know exactly everything, but
8: yeah. That's and, interesting. Uh,
11: we were hiding. I remember one time the caravan came and we were hiding in the barn and looked through the, the board so we could see them going by.
3: Wow. Do you remember when the war ended? What was it like?
11: I remember that we were on, in somebody's house that had a phone. Right across the lake from where I, we lived. And there was still ice on the, on the water, on the lake. And uh, me and my mother walked across to go home, and I remember that. She was very, very happy. And she went home, and she took whatever, I don't know, we had sheets or, or something like that, and she sold a flag, a Norwegian flag. Flag.
8: And she raised it?
11: Yes, they did. Wow. <clears throat> Those things. And that's you know.
3: Now, do you remember, were there any Norwegian flags displayed during the war?
11: No, no, no. There was not not in my place anyway, so I don't know other places We were in a little little village, i'm in a little village in the country in the southern Norway, so, yep, yeah, and I mean we were lucky because we had food, we could grow food on the farm, and we could hide some, and at least we were not hungry and we had corn they grew some corn, and my father and a gang they went to a mill, they knew a mill that Germans had. Cut it off, or whatever they did, they locked it up. But they managed to open it and make some flour out of that.
8: In the middle of the night, they did that.
11: Yeah, yes, it was in the middle of the night. So, those things. But I mean, they they made manage.
3: Now, were there people like quizzling? Was there a, a quizzling in your town?
11: There was one. They knew there was one because people got reported and sent to the Yale. So they knew, but they did not know who it was before. I think they knew after. He was taken after. after Do you know what before. happened to him? No, that I don't. I have no idea. I was too little to have any idea about that.
8: And at that time, I think that you said that the king, uh, they, they they fled to England. and But they, weren't they in the White House? You told me the story that they lived in the White House for a few years.
11: Yeah, they did. The, the king, and I know the, the one that's now
8: the oh, king. yeah.
11: He was there, too. They were there. They were. And he was a young boy. Martha. Yeah, Martha. Martha was the one. Yeah. They lived there. Wow. But, uh, I think it was Roosevelt.
3: What year did you come to this country?
11: I came in 1958, November 1958.
3: Why? Can you tell us
11: why? You know, my mother and father lived here for oh, 10, 15 years when they were young. They left and went back to Norway when the Depression came. Uh, three of the kids were born here. And me and my brother born in Norway, so you know. And my brothers went back; they were here. So there was something we wanted to do.
3: Was there any one? Uh, is there any other one incident that we can leave with right now uh, about the war that you'd like to tell our audience?
8: Uh,
11: I don't know what really uh, that would be. I know there was a plane that fell, and all the town went to to find it. They were all dead, and they took the parachutes. And they sold shirts from it. Wow. Those kind of things, I remember.
8: How was the morale, though? I mean, after the war? Did, I mean, oh, Norwegians well, are very, pa- happy. people are very patriotic, very. even now in Norway.
11: Oh, yes. They were very, very happy. Of course they were. They could. But it took years. When I left in 1958, they were still poor. Yeah.
8: They were still
11: poor they, they hadn't picked up. So, I mean, it was hard. It was hard for the people. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't. Really realized it, but you heard about it after.
8: Yeah, but those are stories that make me who I am too. Because hard times bring good people, bring people together. Everything nowadays is handed to people, and you know, That's you think true. about those stories now. And I, you know, I applaud you. You know, the stories that you continue to tell us about people yeah, that are good people that didn't have much.
11: That's true. They didn't have. They didn't have anything. Let's, let's face it. They were glad used to be
8: alive. I know when you look at the TV and you talk about people that complain about being poor, and she would always yeah, say, "Yeah, that makes me mad." Yeah, and <laughs> 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 you don't know what poor is. No, yeah.
11: they don't. They really don't. Yeah.
3: yeah well, these are the stories yeah. that make America what it is today. Thank you for sharing your memories on Connor's Corner.
11: You're welcome. Thank My you pleasure. so much,
8: and I'll see you later, Mom. Okay. Bye.
3: So, what we've covered today? We've we've covered Norway during world war Two, and we've covered new york during the turn of the century and of course one of the things we found out which it's no surprise the irish guys and the italian guys didn't quite like each other back in 19th century <laughs> new york so surprise on that one uh but i think everybody did like the norwegians back then at least you know my father used to have a bar and you know you always love the norwegian guys
4: well listen i when i moved to bay ridge in 1977 And there were so many wonderful, wonderful Norwegian neighbors around me, and they were just always so kind to me. And um, Arlene, I know that you're just, this is your community, your culture. And I know you've been able to go back and forth to Norway. Could you just tell us a little bit, what was it like being a Norwegian?
8: In- well, I mean, I was born here in America, but my, both my parents were uh, Norwegian. Uh, you know, my
3: father would have given you a very sarcastic <laughs> answer to that one.
8: <laughs> um, it, and it's been, it's been incredible. I mean, I think I'm like the sitting uh, Norwegian here in Brooklyn in the east coast of, of, of Brooklyn, I should say, of New York. We had that business for 30 years, Nordic Deli. Um, we do the parade every year. we go back. We go back and forth it every year to Norway. Each year we spend the summers there when we were a child. Uh, we would go back and forth and visit our grandparents and all our aunts and uncles. And, you know, we do a lot of um, catching up with family members. And even here in, in America, we are – my parents have both become American citizens, even though they were born in, in Norway very proud of their being Americans. Uh, they love their Norwegian roots and they, we go back and forth each year. This year was the only year we didn't go back, but, uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to go back and visit your roots where you come from, no matter who you are and what you are. Sure. You should always sure. uh, remember that. Uh, remember where you came from.
4: I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, is Norway beautiful?
8: It is. I mean, it's very, very expensive, but the landscape, you cannot – you can't get away from it. It's the the fjords, the valleys, the, 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 the people are, are wonderful too. Uh, when you think about – they can't even imagine coming to – some people have never been in America that you know, deal with over there. And they think about right. the sheer size of it. And Norway's less than 8 million people, and we have more than that in Brooklyn. So they can't even imagine that. I remember right. when I was – uh, going to school with my cousins when they were we were younger, when Mr. Mr. Reagan was uh, was the president, um, they would ask me if I knew him, and I'd be like, "No, I don't know." <laughs> the, America's very very big, so yeah, the, the Norwegians are. Everybody has uh, a lot of uh, memories of Norwegians, but years ago, Mr. Connors just talked about the Irish and the Italian. The Norwegians were always fighting with the Italians and the Italians with the Norwegians. I don't know why, <laughs> but there was a lot of fighting in the bars over them. Okay.
3: Well, in any event, I think Mr. Kincaid, who's Irish, is telling us do we go home. Oh, remember those old Irish. Remember, the this, this station is on hallowed ground right next to uh, Trinity Church. In Manhattan, yeah. but thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer.
4: Bye bye, everybody. We are
3: gathered here
4: on Hallowed Ground, the voices raised, heads
1: bowed down. We're gathered here on Hallowed Ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on Hallowed Ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on Hallowed Ground to sing this
2: soul away.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on
6: elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, October
1: 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m a.m. and 3 p.m.
6: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan, plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.